0: this morning, if you brought your Bible, you can turn to Romans 3 and Romans 4. We'll be mostly camping out there. Maybe hold your finger in Ephesians chapter 2 as well. Um, Today I'm talking about the myth of the super disciple. What is that? Well, I thought about this a lot this summer on my sabbatical and had a lot of chance, uh, had a lot of opportunity to think, a lot of opportunity to write. This is actually a book um, that I'm sort of putting together and it really is addressing this idea that there really is this sort of two-level view of Christianity. There's the super saints over here who really got it all together. And then the rest of us, well, we're just saved by grace and faith, right? You guys know what hero empathy is? Hero empathy? I discovered this this summer. Hero empathy is a plot device. It's a device where, um, you know, we go in and we watch a movie. We come out and we, we really like the movie. But it's not because the plot was super awesome. It's because we really identified with the main characters in the movie, right? We emotionally empathized with them. That's hero empathy. Hero empathy is why my little boys come home from a superhero movie and strap on their capes and their spider jammies and jump all over the house saving the day, right? It's exactly why uh, my little boys... Uh, uh, like to pretend that they have been altered at the subatomic level, you know, and now they have superpowers and they have a a utility belt full of high-tech gadgetry and that's where my iPhone usually goes missing. (laughs) But it's not just a kid thing. You and I experience that too. You and I experience uh, hero empathy every time, for instance, uh, our favorite team wins the Super Bowl. You know, what do we do? Especially if it's a hometown team. You know, if it were like the Vikings, well, that would never happen. But uh, if if it was a hometown team, what would we do? We would jump and high five and celebrate that we won. Yeah, we didn't win anything. We didn't win anything. We sat around on the couch, right? We sat on the couch and enjoyed an array of snacks and only got up on occasion to reload our plate and go to the restroom. That's what we did. We didn't show up to training camp and kill ourselves in the gym and catch a hundred passes a day dodging human freight trains. We are living through our heroes. We are vicariously letting them stand on our shoulders and be the Captain Awesomes that we cannot be. And so that experience actually comes into our Christian experience as well. Some, Some people approach the Christian life that way. They look at me, well, not me, but they look at like Pastor Brian as like this super saint, this super spiritual guy, right? And it's enough for someone to know the Bible. At least somebody's praying. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's doing it, doing that discipleship thing. But we cannot live through our super spiritual heroes. We cannot live through super disciples, and we cannot live through other people. That is discipleship by proxy, and Jesus has not called us to discipleship by proxy. He has called us to discipleship, to follow him, and that's what I kind of want to talk about today. Um, As a pastor of discipleship here, I often hear the, the term discipled believers. I hear it in this context. When are all these believers these new converts, going to get discipled? And I understand that's a very well-meaning question. The question really is, is man, when are we going to take all these uh, sort of new, new people that come up out of the waters of baptism and take them through a program that's really going to help them know the Bible? I'm all for that. That's what my job is here to do. However, what we miss often is that those new believers are already disciples, When Jesus told the apostles, go and make disciples of the nations, he told them to do two things, two two criteria on the list. Go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, bring them through conversion, through spirit baptism into the community of faith. That's what that's about. And teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That's the second part of it. So the second part of it is about learning to obey all of of what Jesus has commanded. We're going to focus on the grace piece today. We're going to look at how a person enters a life of discipleship and what exactly that means and what it doesn't mean. If you're following along in your outline, I just wanted to uh, kind of give you a heads up. You could jot this down just in the margin or something. What is a disciple? A disciple is a believer. That's basically it. A disciple is a believer. Now, in the first century world, we get confused because it was used in basically three different ways in the New Testament. A disciple could be an apprentice. If you were a disciple of a scribe, you were learning to become someday a scribe. That scribe is going to say, yes, you've met the criteria. I'm turning you loose. Now, you're the lawyer. You're uh, the, uh, the legal expert. So we use it in a sense of apprentice, and Jesus did use it in this sense with his disciples. They were to apprentice with him, but they weren't apprentices in the technical sense because an apprentice someday wants to become the master. He someday wants to become the leader. And Jesus put the kibosh on that for the disciples. He said, you will only ever be my disciples. You will never gain disciples for yourself. You will only gain disciples for me. So they were apprentices, but permanently. The second way in which it's used in the New Testament is this idea of a a disciple as a leader in training. Absolutely true. Matthew chapter 10, that's for sure. They were disciples who were leaders in training, and that's an appropriate way to use the term. But the third way in which it was used is in the book of Acts, where it says, and all the believers were gathered together, and the disciples did thus and so. So the word believer and disciple are interchangeable in the book of Acts so by the time we get to the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit is poured out on God's people, those two terms are interchangeable. If you are a believer, you are a disciple. And the way you come into the faith is by grace. Look at this passage in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here's what it says. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can brag about it. Well, if someone gives you a gift, you can't brag that you earned it, right? There's some things about grace that we need to learn by looking at its opposite or looking at what it it is not. On your outline, number one there is grace is not payment for a pious life. Grace is not payment for a pious life. If grace could be earned, Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, if it could be earned, then it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be a gift, right? It would be wages for services rendered, and he uses Abraham. See, the Jews were big on Moses, and Moses gave them the Torah, the law. And the law had all this stuff in it. They had to do it. And Paul comes to these Jewish Christians in Rome, and he says, actually, you need to go before Moses. The promise starts with Abraham. And God gave him a promise, and Abraham was justified before God. That is to say, Abraham was made right in God's sight by faith. Faith in a promise. It was obedient faith, but it was faith nonetheless to a promise, or faith in a promise. So it's not something, it's not that Abraham earned this as a paycheck. This wasn't wages earned. It's a gift, free gift. A few years ago, um, years back, my family and I, we went through the hardest time in our family life. I was working, I think I was working two jobs. Carrie had a couple of odd jobs and I ended up having to go to the food bank once or twice a week just to keep our family alive. And it was really difficult, especially for a hard charger like me. Man, I'm a workaholic. I have like three or five jobs. <laughs> I don't know how many jobs I have, but uh, I, I, I work really hard. And I value hard work. And I always wanted my boys to see me working hard, earning my way. I wanted them to, that to be what they knew of me. So it was incredibly difficult when Carrie and I had different shifts. I would have to go down to the food bank and take my two little boys, two at that time. Uh, Tyler was four and Hayden was two and a half. And I would t- get them both up in my arms and stand in line at the food bank over in Quarter Lane, And I got to tell you, that was very humiliating. I didn't want my kids to see me that way. And no one is talking in that line if you've ever stood in line at the food bank, you know there's no community. We're a community of sorts. It's because we all are carrying the same weight of shame. We all feel it. We feel the shame that we're being handed something that we didn't earn because God wired us to earn our living. So there I am standing in this quiet line. You can hear a pin drop. i got Hayden in this arm, a big boy, Tyler, four-year-old in this arm's, Tyler, suddenly, in this quiet room where people are just getting these handouts of food, he says, Daddy, is this the grocery store? I said, no, Bubba, Now shush. He said, well, if it's not the grocery store, then why are we getting groceries here? I go, dude, it's not the grocery store. Now button it. (laughs) And he just wouldn't put a cork in it. He just kept blathering on and on. I couldn't get his little jaw to stop flapping. And it was, and no one thought it was cute. The more he talked, the more we all just felt the weight of shame. It was a horrible experience. In fact, I sweat really easy. Guys who know me, you know I sweat really easy. And so it just triggered beads of sweat rolling down my back. Or I could feel it rolling down my back and in my eyes, but I didn't want anyone. To see me wipe my brow. So I stood in line for 10 minutes going like this because the sweat was just <laughs> stalking and stinging my eyes, man. When I finally got up to the front, the lady handed me this box, pushed it across the counter. And I took, I put my boys down, I picked up the box, I said, Thank you. And I turned around to walk out the door, and Tyler said, Daddy, you didn't pay for your groceries and he wouldn't move, <laughs> he would just stood there, he wouldn't go until I paid for the groceries. So the lady helped me out with him and I got out in the car and I strapped him in the back seat and I put the box in the front seat and I sat there and before I turned the key, I just busted into tears. I cried so hard that day, I, I almost went unconscious crying, I just cried and cried because I didn't want my boys to see me that way and at no point ever, ever, Standing in that line, did it ever occur to me that I was take, to take credit for what was being handed me? At no point. Because it was a handout, plain and simple. I didn't earn it because I was the best line stander. I didn't earn it because of my intellectual prowess or because I had a college degree. I didn't earn it for any other reason that gave it to me. And that is the first picture that Paul wants to give us of the grace of God. The grace of God is not payment for your pious life. God doesn't have people, saints, super saints, on his payroll who get handed a check for eternity because they lived a buttoned up life. That is not the gospel of grace. Grace is a free gift of salvation. You get it, you don't earn it. That's number one. Number two, here's the second thing grace is not grace is not cheap. Grace isn't cheap. No such thing as cut-rate grace. Paul reminds us what grace costs in Romans 3.25. Here's what he said. Listen carefully. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. I'll read it again. God presented Christ Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. We almost don't even see it anymore because it's just become a religious thing. But back in the first century world when Paul is writing this and the pastor at the Romans church is reading this to the congregation, they all know exactly what Paul is talking about. He is talking about a man hanging on a cross, wrecked, being tortured to death for you and me. God paid the price for your salvation of the death of his son. And it wasn't just the death of Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. It wasn't just that. It was the fact that Jesus, according to Philippians chapter 2, humiliated himself, the God, the resplendent, transcendent God of glory, the God who existed before time began, who called the worlds into existence. This God is found in appearance as a man. And he humbles himself to our process, which is the process of death. You live, you die. And then he goes one step further. He humbles himself to the point of being crucified on a cross by evil men. Grace cost God the incarnation. It cost Jesus everything. Grace is not cheap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous protester of the Nazi war, a German theologian, famously stated this. He said, cheap grace is grace without discipleship. It is grace without the cross. It is grace without Jesus, living and incarnate. Cut-rate grace, cheap grace, just views God as a doting old grandfather who doesn't have children that he purchased and bought. He has a bunch of grandkids. And you know how grandkids are, or grand, grandfathers are. I didn't say this in the first service because Kurt was in here, but you know how they are, those grandpas. They just love to lavish their grandkids with stuff, and then you send them home, right? You get them all sugared up and spoiled, and then you send them back to mom and dad's house. But the heavenly father is not a big grandpa in heaven who has a bunch of grandkids who lavishes his children with gifts and allows them to remain indulgent, spoiled little terrors. That is not the grace of Scripture, and that is not the God of Scripture. That's not Paul's grace. Paul's God, Paul's grace is the God who comes to earth and pays the price for your eternity so that you could spend eternity with God. It ain't cheap, and if you want the cheap grace, if you want the cheap Jesus, you don't get the real Jesus. That's the message. Number three, grace isn't merely a status update, but a change of capacity. Grace isn't just a change of your status. Everybody take your smartphones out. Take them out. Don't turn them on. We'll get mad at you for letting it beep. And uh, how many of you guys have a little Facebook app on your smartphone? You guys got that? Yeah, I got one. You can put uh, right now, just if you, if you think of it, change your status to forgiven by grace. That's cool, huh? Well, that partly is it, actually. It partly is that God has changed your status. It's partly that God has brought you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You are no longer a sinner saved by grace. You're a saint, which means holy one. You're a person that God has brought into the kingdom of his son. You're forgiven by grace. But it's not just a status update. It's a change of your capacity. It's a change of your potential. God begins to actualize your potential on the day you get saved want to explain this a little bit better. Uh, Before his untimely death due to pancreatic cancer, Steve Jobs gave a famous speech to Samford University. It was his last one. In fact, let me tell you what my pet peeve is about Steve Jobs. He's dead now, so I can say this. Um, This is just my pet peeve. Now, I'm an Apple guy. I use all Apple products, I don't use any PC, I apologize, I'm not a PC person, I don't like them, <laughs> Brian is like, Brian had all Mac products and sold them because he hates them, but uh, <laughs> but I love the iPhone, the iPad, and, the, and my MacBook Pro, I mean, I just use Apple products, so I'm very grateful that this crazy genius brought all these wonderful products to our uh, consciousness, it's great, but Every time I hear anyone talk about Steve Jobs, it's always, well, Steve Jobs just changed the world. No, he didn't. He changed technology for about two years, okay? In about two years, none of us are going to be using these things. We're going to be using, like, our Holo phones that pop up out of our palms or something, you know? <laughs> like, we're going to be using stuff that we haven't even invented yet. In five years, we won't even remember him. He didn't change Jack's squat. You want to talk about changing the world, how about a rabbi from backwater Nazareth who dies on a cross and raises from the dead? How about that guy? Talk about changing the world. Even if you're a skeptic and you don't like Jesus, these skeptics still have to write 300-page 300 pa- 300 books on why Jesus isn't God. Well, if it's so self-evident, why does it require a 300-page book? Anyway, okay, my rant's over. But Steve Jobs gave a great speech. It was an awesome speech at Stanford University. And he had this killer line in it. Steve Jobs had thought a lot about eternity. Now, as a Buddhist, he did not have a personal doctrine of heaven because Buddhists don't believe in heaven. But he started to think about heaven. It's amazing to me, the closer we get to death's door the more we think about the things that are fundamental to the human experience. And here's what he said in the speech. First of all, it had a lot of applause lines. You know, a lot of good stuff in it. Connect the dots, he said. I thought that was great. Connect the dots. Follow your dream, he said. Awesome. Find what you love. Cool. I like that. Then he said it. It was a jarring statement that most of us weren't privy to. It gave us a window into his inner world, and that's when he said it. He said this, remembering that I'll be dead soon is the most important tool I've ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life. No one wants to die, he said. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. And Jobs had achieved it all. Wealth, success. He was even a success in his family life. He had every thing but he couldn't get away from the one thing that you and I everyone no matter what your status in life is we all have an appointment with eternity and he was right about that he was right about that that insight I thought was great and I have seen men over the years not not as much as others particularly people who work in the medical field but I have seen people over the years who have died without Christ if you're a pastor or a former pastor, you know what this is like. It's a horrific experience. When you sat by the bedside of a man who literally has misspent his life on his hobbies, on his career, on his vacation, all of those things are a good thing. Every one of those things are good, especially redeemed in Christ. But to not give one thought about your eternity, to not think a single day about standing before God and giving an account for your life, (sighs) and to sit by the bedside of a man who has misspent his life, who has only ever lived for this world, go kicking and screaming into the next world, it is a dreadful, horrible thing to watch. Because they have no hope. They are walking into the forever dark. They are walking into a Christless eternity without God and you just don't know what to do. You just pray for them. But I've also sat at the bedside of believers. And you would think it would be different. Well, it is, mostly. I mean, mostly, believers uh, do have an internal assurance. I mean, when a believer is at death's door, they just, the spirit bears witness with their spirit that they are going to close their eyes the last time and step into the presence of God, the full beam of God's awesome presence. And that is an assurance that as believers we all have, but believers don't want to die either. Believers don't want to let go of this life. Of course you don't. You were made for this life. You were. You weren't made for heaven. God didn't make you to spend eternity in heaven. God made you to live in this world. You're a terrestrial being. You're forever forever tethered to this physical terrestrial world. And so something in a believer still doesn't want to go because we want to give our daughters away in marriage. And we want to give advice to our sons, our sons who are getting old and, and, and having kids. And we want to hold our grandbabies and tell them what it was like when we were growing up. We didn't have all these newfangled things that you kids have today. Oh, well, man, we want to keep doing life. But you can't. At some point, whether you're a believer, a disciple, or a non-disciple, you gotta die. And if you're a believer, if you're gonna go to heaven, you have to die to get there. Steve Jobs was right about that. In the same way, if you want to be a believer in Jesus, if you want to encounter God's 100-proof grace, as Luther said, you have to die. Coming to faith in Jesus... Is not about you and I just getting lavished with every gift that God ever wanted to give us. It isn't Christmas every morning. That is is pie in the sky. Coming to faith in Jesus is coming to a point of dying to you, it's death to self. Now, normally we associate death to self to Christian maturity. Man, I gotta die to that habit. That, that, that smoking habit, well, if you're Pastor Matt, I, some other habit. Um, you know, that, uh, that cursing habit, that was my habit. That's the habit I had to break. So I had to die to my, to my filthy language because I could let it fly, man. I had to die to that. Well, we typically think of death to self as a Christian maturity thing, but it's not just a Christian maturity thing. When you come to faith in Jesus and you experience the grace of Almighty God, you experience a severing of an old relationship. You are dead to your sin. Look how Paul says it in Romans chapter 6. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Are you crazy? That's what the Greek means there. By no means, he says, we are those who have died to sin. How can we live on it and in on it any longer? Or don't you know that, we, uh, that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This passage teaches us a universal axiom to the Christian life. And that is, if you want to live, you got to die. You want Jesus' life? You embrace his death, death on a cross. You come to this cross, and you kneel before the crucified, risen Savior. And what happens in that moment is that you participate, according to Paul, you participate in his death. You die. If you want to go to heaven, Steve Jobs was right. You got to die to get there. If you want God's grace, you have to experience this death. And in case the Romans were duped into thinking that grace was now a permit for them to do anything they want, for profligacy, they had another thing coming. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, we could cope. The whole world could cope with a Jesus who ultimately remains a very nice idea in the minds of disciples. Disciples. But the world cannot cope, he said, with a Jesus who comes out of the tomb and plants his resurrection life right in the middle of this one. So your defining orientation as a believer is you're dead. You're dead to yourself. You're dead to your old life. And all things have been made new. You're a new believer. And this is why grace is not just a change of your status. Grace is a change of your capacity. It's a change of God's ability to make you the disciple that he envisions you to be. So here's some things. I just kind of came up with these. But here's some things I think that you and I died to. We died to our need to always be right at the expense of loving Christ-like relationships. How many relationships have been trashed? How many relationships have been just done away with? Because people refuse, they just refuse to be in relationship in a loving, Christ-like, self-sacrificing way. How many of those relationships torched? Because the person had to be right. I'm right. Well, maybe you are right. But there's a higher value here in the kingdom. We've also died to our selfish need to to bail on people just because a marriage gets hard. We deal with this all the time at East Point. If I had a nickel for every time somebody came into Brian's office and bailed on a marriage because it got too hard, I'd be a rich pastor. I'd be one of those TV guys. It'd be awesome for like a month. But God hasn't called you to bail on a marriage. God hasn't called you to bail on a relationship or a ministry just because things get hard. It's called discipleship. The word discipline is in the word discipleship. Yeah, it's hard. That's that's your life in Christ. It's hard. But it's doable hard. It's not destructive hard. We've died to our lust and our self-indulgences and addictions. Addictions that we have allowed to control us until they have put us in a self Made hell. I see some people dealing with addiction, and it just breaks my heart because they have put themselves in a prison, a prison of addiction. You've died to your false belief systems, but we all have them. Think about your, uh, the worst false belief system you have right now. Go ahead. Think about it. What is it? Yeah, see, you're not thinking about it because you don't know you have it. (laughs) You don't know you have it, it's like a fish in water. He doesn't know what water is. And so we all have these false belief systems that we walk around with every single day and they hinder our growth in Jesus. They hinder our ability to become the disciple that God envisions us to become. And they hinder us. And this is why you need pastors. Do you know why you need me? You don't need me so you can come and hear funny stories about my kids, although I love the fact that you love those. But you don't need that. What you need is for me to sit across a table from you and to listen to what's going on to your life and then call you on your crap. That's what you need. Amen. (laughs) I ain't hearing a lot of amens. Brian calls it Jeffangelism. <laughs> That's why I will never get counseling appointments. He's busy all week. I don't never have counseling appointments anyway. <laughs> That's because the first few people that came out of my office told everyone else, don't go back to Jeff's office. <laughs> but I'm not joking, man. That is what you need. What you need is for somebody to sit across a table or a living room or come to my office. It's so comfortable. You would love it. In there. I have books. I have nice... You know uh it's it's really comfortable i'll make you a latte we can sit and talk but at some point in the conversation i'm going to call you on your crap i'm going to tell you you're full of it and i don't mind you telling me that either you know why because you need a coach i love these nba coaches that are like this tall (laughs) i love these guys they got like a little afro and they're like get out there and slam dunk that basketball well They they couldn't slam dunk the basketball ball ball if Shaquille O'Neal picked him up and threw him at the, they couldn't do it. But what are they? They're a good coach because they have a perspective that a player on the field doesn't have and that's what you need. You need mentoring. You need a coach. You need somebody to speak into your life and say, bruh, that is a false belief system you are carrying around a false belief system and God has put me in your life to help you crucify that to the cross because you're dead to that, believer. You died to that. Okay, there you go. I love those, those videos on YouTube that go viral. You know which ones I'm talking about? It's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint exactly why they go viral. I mean think about the ones that get like a billion hits. Some little kid <laughs> sitting in front of his computer just rocking out to Lady Gaga, you know, like lip singing Lady Gaga. Or it's some kid who tried to build a ramp and just totally bit it. And my, the reason why I think these things go viral is because my theory on this is there's a shared experience. We've all been there. We know what it's like to sing in front of our mirror with the hairbrush. Except somebody's willing to do it for a billion people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and be really superhumanly bad at it. And we all know exactly what it's like, man, to try to do something and then experience an epic fail. We know what that's like. We can identify. It's hero empathy. They're on the screen. We empathize with them. And so those things go viral. Or there was something in the ancient world, this whole idea of a super disciple, a disciple who's really made it and is awesome. That idea goes all the way back. I'm going to finish my sermon today with a little history lesson. It goes all the way back to Jesus' time and Paul's world. Rome was exceedingly efficient at destroying secretive cults. They didn't like them. They didn't like any of them. They didn't just not like Christianity. They didn't like anything <clears> that wasn't an official uh, religion sanctioned by Rome. So cults like the Mithras. How many of you guys have heard of the Mithras? Raise your hand. Dionysus. You heard of Dionysus cults? Okay. The reason why you've never heard of them is because Rome was really good at getting rid of them. So they met secretively. And oftentimes they believed very much that the, that the uh, people who attended the cult, that, that the, uh, the spirits would speak to them to tell them even where they were meeting, their secret location. But Rome found out, killed them all. Guess which one it didn't kill? Christianity. Rome took the same approach with Christianity and didn't kill us. In fact, in 250 years, Christianity became the dominant religion of Rome. <laughs> Powerful. But in Paul's world, Paul had to deal with the hero worship of the pagans. They believed that certain people in the cult had special spirituality. They were the super saints of that cult. And Paul had to deal with this. Jesus had to deal with it on the, on the hillsides of Galilee. They were called the Pharisees. In the first century world, the Pharisees didn't call themselves Pharisees. They called themselves the Purashim, where Purashim means the pure ones. How's that for a title? We're the pure ones. You're all the filthy wretches, right? What does that communicate? How about the Zadokoi? The we call them Sadducees. Well, you couldn't even get into that cult. You couldn't even get in. You had to be born in through the Levitical priest system or you had to have enough money to buy your way in. So you couldn't even participate in that one. How about the Essenes? There's a super awesome plan. Let's get 10 of us together. Let's go out in the middle of the desert, and let's just start church out in the middle of the desert away from everyone else. Well, some people do it today. Why? Because they had a super spiritual elitism going on. And their call to discipleship was come be a member of the elite, if you're good enough. If you can make the cut, what was Jesus' call to discipleship? Come to me, all you who are weak and heavy burden, and I will give you Shabbat rest for your weary, sin souls. Jesus' call was to the masses, to all those sort of uh, people who had been discarded, the people sitting in the chief seats of religion. He said, no, come down to the front row. You got a front row seat in my show. Jesus called the masses, and his call is to discipleship. And the moment you come by grace into the family of God, you become a disciple, and from that moment on, you're ever becoming more of that which you have already been made a disciple of Jesus. That's what grace is all about. Can't earn it, it doesn't give you a license to do whatever you want and be a scoundrel. Grace is for you, discipleship is for you. Let's pray if I could get everyone to close their eyes, just bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here today and you say, Pastor Jeff, I have never heard about that gospel. I've never heard about the gospel of grace. I'm new here, and so I just have never heard it explained that way. But I want Jesus' grace. I want to know Jesus by faith in him alone for salvation. If that's you, will you raise your hand? Can I see you? Okay, all right. Keep them up for a second so I can see them all. Thank you, thanks. Thank you. Anybody else? Thanks. One more time, anybody else? You say, today's it. I know that I don't have to work for my salvation. I know that God's grace is not only a change of status, but empowers me to live grace, to live for Jesus in this life. And you say, I want that grace. I want that Jesus. Anybody else? Yes, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Anyone else? Thank you. Thanks. I see you. Gotcha. Anybody else? All right, if you didn't raise your hand and you wanted to, why not you pray with me right now? Pray something like this. Jesus, I've blown it. I'm not right. I know I'm a sinner, but I come to your cross right now, and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me from all of my sin. And I believe that you are doing that right now, and so I accept your free gift of salvation. And from this moment on, I am going to walk and live in this grace, not perfectly, not perfect, but empowered by your grace, your gift of salvation, I receive it, and I'm becoming a believer. Keep your heads bowed. There are some of you who you you just kind of thought the Christian faith was about getting your ticket punched so you can escape hell. You didn't know that you were supposed to be empowered by grace to live a godly life, to say no to those ungodly passions, to walk in God's word. And that's you right now. Will you raise your hand so I can pray for you? Go ahead. Raise it up. Thank you. Thanks. Anybody else? Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. Say, today I'm choosing to be a disciple, but I'm going to live like a disciple. Anybody else? Thanks. I see it. Thanks, Bubba. Anybody else? All right, I got you. All right, let me pray for you. Pray something like this. Jesus. From this day forward, I am going to live like a disciple of Jesus. I am going to live empowered by the grace and the Holy Spirit of God. I'm going to live your word, and I'm going to do it. And I'm going to be a disciple, and I'm not going to bail on those relationships just because they get hard. And I'm not going to bail on my marriage, and I'm not going to bail on my family and my ministry. And I'm not gonna bail just because life gets hard. I am going to do it your way, God, empowered by your grace and your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Give those guys a hand, man. <clears throat> so here's the deal uh, this is my sales pitch unabashed, unashamed sales pitch before I sit down, I am kind of like the uh, physical trainer on staff here, except apparently it isn't physical, it's spiritual, and my job is to get you those rock-hard spiritual labs that you've always wanted. (laughs) Yeah, right on. (laughs) To bring you into a state of spiritual maturity, growing in your spiritual maturity, People ask me all the time, why do we run so, much, so many programs and things during the fall and during the winter and the spring? I do it because I want to give you opportunities to train yourself to be godly, as Paul told Timothy. And we have a lot of those. Paul mentioned some of them. Matthew journey is probably one of the best, absolutely best things you can get in just because you have to confront Jesus' teachings systematically. It's so powerful. But another one that I wanted to let you know about is this uh, mentoring program that we have called Antioch School of Ministry. Antioch School of Ministry is a college uh, and a graduate school that we are starting here at East Point. And it's for two kinds of people, really three kinds of people. One, it's for those who are leaders who want to invest more education into their ministry. Two, it's for high-capacity servants. It's for a person who says, you know what, I'm a high-capacity servant around here. I want to invest in my own education. Uh, These are accredited degrees. We go through uh, Antioch School in Ames, Iowa, which is a fully accredited system. And so if you're interested in that, please make a beeline for me or send me an email. You could go on our website at eastpointchurch.org. Click the discipleship uh, icon there, and we have an Antioch School. We have a ton of information on there about it. But if you want to enroll in that program, it is a tuition-based system But essentially, what you'll be doing is investing in your own discipleship and your own ministry aptitude and uh, with people like me and Pastor Matt and others being your mentors. And it's a phenomenal opportunity to train yourself in godliness. Awesome opportunity. So you could get a bachelor's in theology or ministry or a a master's in theology or ministry up to a master's of theology. So really cool program. So uh, let's pray. We're going to take the offering and worship one last time. God. Thanks for being here. You promised you would be, and we know you are. We're going to worship by giving of our resources today, and we pray that it would be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Let's sing. If you prayed that prayer today, you need to go back and find one of these new believer packets. It has a Bible and it explains some things about your salvation and your journey into grace. Also, I want you to come down. You need to do two more things. Come down. I want you to share that with one of our prayer counselors who will be at the front and then there's a communion table right over here. You can go, and uh, that prayer person will actually help you and explain communion to you and explain that. And uh, also, uh, you guys have a great week, but remember, we also have Kelly Breslin, who is back here. In addition to all the things that we're running, we're running an awesome women's group, Uh, awesome women's group uh, on Sunday mornings, and it's called Transforming. Uh, Kelly is a very excellent teacher, and she's gonna be leading you through that. So if you wanna sign up for that, go back to... uh, Go talk to Kelly back there, okay? Have a great week living Jesus' grace, okay? God bless you.